Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Kellen, it feels like the last several months have just been a nonstop barrage of bad news in regards to conditions all over the globe, right? From drought to heat waves to famine to natural disasters, war, supply chain issues, economic problems. We've talked about instances of nations and, and countries actually collapsing and breaking down. Like it feels like we're seeing an acceleration of so many different issues. One of the main issues that I feel like I've seen a lot about in the news recently is the potential for food shortages. And a lot of those articles are saying things like heat waves in country X means a lower crop yield or supply chain issues means that food is not going to be delivered to certain places. Economic issues in another country might mean they can't afford to feed their people. So a whole lot of that going on. And a lot of it is saying that we're not quite seeing the extent of those issues yet. We're going to see those issues here in the near future. And that to me is nerve wracking because a lack of food has the potential to cause the type of violence that can bring a nation down. And when we're living in a world that already has more than 1 billion people suffering from food shortages and hunger, it makes me nervous to think about the direction we're headed and, and how bad it could get. Yeah, when we talk about something like a supply chain shortage in microchips, that's scary and it has a lot of implications. You know, and even when we talk about an economic downturn or the economy kind of crashing, that's terrifying, but really only because it comes back to food and water. 
right? Like what we need to survive the very basic essentials include food and water. So any sort of a shortage there is going to have a direct and dramatic, probably catastrophic effect on humanity. Whereas other problems that we might see with collapse, perhaps there's ways we can shift things around and make it work at least temporarily. Well, and all of these things that we've mentioned regarding recent news, they're just evidences of the overall trend of where we're headed. So we've talked about some of these numbers in the past in other episodes, but I think that they're pertinent to bring up here. It's expected that by 2050, the amount of arable land per person will drop by 66% when compared to 1970 numbers. So way less arable land. We've got more people, right? We're destroying the land and the soil that we're currently farming. It's like we're headed in the wrong direction in both ways. Now, by 2050, more than two out of every three people are going to live in urban areas. And so right now, we're already seeing this increasing divide between where food is being grown, where it's consumed, which is causing more stress on supply chains, you know, international trade, geopolitics, as well as it's creating a larger divide in the gap between wealthy and poor as it relates to food. You know, food is being grown in rural areas or more poor areas, maybe even, you know, poorer countries. It is then harvested and sent to rich areas, and that can leave those poorer areas and poorer people without adequate food. We've talked a lot about the vulnerabilities that come from interdependency and the way that our agricultural systems work mean that those urban centers rely pretty much wholly on rural areas for their food. They rely wholly on supply chains functioning properly, which is something that we've seen a breakdown of recently, which is causing an inflationary pressure on the cost of food. And that is something that is just going to continue to get worse and worse over time as more people move to urban areas. What we're talking about today, which is vertical farming, is a potential, or I should say a proposed solution to some of these issues. Every so often we do an, an episode on technology. We propose the question, can this technology save us, right? And even though we usually know the answer to that question before the episode even starts, there is so much value, I think, into looking into each of these technologies, seeing what merits they have. What are the benefits? Where are we at with this technology? Where is it going to take us? What are the possibilities? And then also looking realistically at the flip side, which is what are the limitations? What are the downsides of this? And in the end, is it any good? Yeah, the idea of vertical farming sounds like something with a lot of potential and, and sounds like something to get excited about. I mean, I'm excited to learn more about it. But I think about the fact that even with people, when space is starting to get tight, you build up instead of out, right? Which is why in these urban areas, you've got people living in, in high-rise apartment buildings. You've got skyscrapers. You can fit a lot more just people in a smaller space. And so if there are ways that you can take advantage of, of building up and being able to produce food closer to urban areas, that seems like a big win. Yeah, and exactly. That's the point I think I was trying to make in the introduction to this episode regarding the growing disparity in where our food is being grown and where people live, because that's one of the things that vertical farming is trying to fix. So before we get into that, before we get into why vertical farming is important, let's talk a little bit about what it actually is. 
Some people may be pretty familiar with it. This may be a new concept to some people. Basically, vertical farming is typically growing plants in stacked layers on vertical planes instead of doing it horizontally. You think of traditional agriculture, massive fields, everything's done on one plane, right? But in vertical farming, you can have towers, you can have shelves stacked as high as your building will go, and you're able to grow much more food in a much, much smaller footprint. So it's interesting because just like you said, Kellen, for people living in urban areas, obviously you can fit way more people living in a much smaller space compared to a suburban landscape where it's going to be highly inefficient, right? If you have an entire building that can walk to a grocery store that's just down the street, that's much more efficient than a suburban area where you might have the same amount of people spread out over five miles and they all have to drive to the grocery store. Well, the same is true about vertical farming. You're able to get higher yields from a much smaller footprint because you're able to grow them in buildings and areas that fit better into an urban landscape. So some of the structures commonly used for vertical farming are warehouses. You can use homes, skyscrapers, shipping containers. You can use old abandoned mines or tunnels are actually being used for this. And the type of farming that's being done, you may have heard of hydroponics or aquaponics. It's not your, your idea of traditional farming in soil, right? Hydroponics and aquaponics, they're soilless techniques. So you might be using like a, like a soil substitute. You might be using water. You might be having, in the case of aeroponics, your plants are suspended in the air without any soil at all. And one really interesting aspect of vertical farms is that it's highly dependent on technology. They're using a lot of different types of AI, machine learning, internet of things capabilities to sort of try and automate the process and essentially perfect the art of farming. When I think of traditional farming, I think of, again, these big open fields, plant a bunch of seed, you know, you might have a large amount of failure, you're going to have a lot that doesn't end up getting harvested because it's no good. You're going to have a wide variety in size and quality. Certain areas of your field might completely be a loss while other areas of the field flourish. But with vertical farming, the idea is to get the highest yield possible to really control exactly what's happening in that environment and get the absolute best product out of it as quickly and efficiently as possible. Yeah, what an awesome concept. I think typically when we think about agriculture, we think of it being something pretty archaic. And when we compare it to all of the technologies we see around us in, in modern life, we kind of think of agriculture as a century or two behind, right? It's kind of a step back. And yet the blend of technology and agriculture, I think, honestly, it's in agriculture that we've probably seen the most technological advancements. And if you can do more with less, if you can really perfect the art to the point that you can drastically decrease the amount of resources you need to put in, in order to end up with an output that can feed more people. I mean, to me, that's phenomenal. You talked about a couple of different kind of subcategories within this broader topic, and I'm sure in the future we'll get into some of those, but one of those that you mentioned was aquaponics. And I remember before I ever learned about collapse, my parents telling me uh, of, of a friend that they had 
who was making a ton of money. And, and they said he had just purchased a shipping container and it was like half filled with water. And there were some, I don't know, some UV lights in there and he would sprinkle some chemicals in there, but he was able to grow an incredible amount of cabbage. And it was going so well, he was able to sell this cabbage locally that he was purchasing additional shipping containers. And at the time, it was just mind-blowing to me. And that was just some random guy that lived a few miles from us who was figuring it out as kind of a side gig. But when you think about people that are really dedicating themselves to advancing methods of agriculture in a way that can produce the results you're talking about, I, I think that's incredible. Yeah, you mentioned their aquaponics. I had briefly mentioned aeroponics and hydroponics. This episode, we're not going to go into those uh, and specifically what the differences between them are. I think that's something that in the future, probably in our next podcast, uh, we'll talk more about that and how people can utilize those to become sustainable in their own food production, right? I've had very little experience with this myself. There, there was a period of time where I experimented with growing microgreens in my basement under LED lights. And that was a lot of fun. I learned a lot from that. I wasn't great at it, but I think with some practice and some tweaking, I, I could have got a lot better and I enjoyed the microgreens that I got from it. So it is a cool hobby. I think there's a lot to learn about it. I'm excited. I've, I've got a extended family member who is really, really into it all. And so maybe we'll have them on for an interview or something at some point. But the purpose of today's episode is to talk more about the pros and cons of the whole idea of vertical farming. You know, you mentioned, Kellen, the idea that you're able to get a really high output while using less resources. Well, in some ways, that's very true of vertical farming. And in some ways, it is a very resource intense and resource hungry technology at the moment. So we will get into in what ways is it resource friendly and in what ways is it resource hungry. First, I wanted to mention there was, there was an article that I read in which it's talking about the different types of technologies used here. It says this, it says vertical farms use smart sensors to monitor technical variables, including temperature, carbon dioxide, oxygen, lighting, humidity, nutrient concentration, pH, pest control, irrigation, and harvesting. Moreover, controlled environmental agriculture can utilize advanced imaging and sensor technologies, including cameras and thermal imaging to measure plant growth, temperature, and other factors. So they are measuring a whole array of things. Basically, this machine learning can learn on the individual plant level what they need, how much water, when, how much light, and when, what the environment should be like, how much carbon dioxide should be in the air, what nutrients to provide, all of these things, learning and changing in order to be able to create the best yield, the best quality plant each time. Now, I do want to mention that saying this, we're not saying that traditional farming doesn't use a lot of technology. Like Kellen said, the technology in agriculture has come a long way. It feels like vertical farming is just trying to perfect the use of that technology to decrease waste and maximize yield in a controlled environment. So on that note, let's move to some of the advantages of vertical farming. So when you're in a controlled environment, that does give you several opportunities to do something that you can't do when you're outside. So for example, you can have a wider variety of different plants in the same area because a different sort of plot is used for each plant. Whereas with traditional farming, you might have a large plot of land all in the same soil that they'll use for the same plant, right? 
You've got weather resistance because these plants are inside. So less crops are lost to rapid changes in weather. Uh, you know, around here, I hear anytime there is like a frost warning or a freeze warning, everybody's freaking out about their gardens. Farmers are, are freaking out about their crops because one unexpected freeze in the wrong time of year can cause a lot of plants to be lost. So in vertical farming, we're basically eliminating that risk by controlling the temperature environment and the weather environment inside of a building. And I think it's probably worth calling out that there's a wide range in approaches, right? There's different types of vertical farming. When you talk about it can be designed and built in different ways. And I, I've even seen kind of outdoor shelves on a larger scale. In those cases, there's not really any protection from the elements, but you're talking about kind of a specialized way of doing vertical farming. Yeah, that's right. Vertical farming doesn't technically have to be in a controlled environment, though a lot of the, the main advantages that come from vertical farming, a lot of the technologies around it are being used in a controlled environment so that they can account for any of those variables. So of course, the, the main advantage of a vertical farm that's outside is going to be that it can take advantage of the light, but there are other aspects of that that are that leave it less protected, right? So, so in this case, specifically for the pros here, for the advantages, we are talking about something that's in a more controlled environment. So another one is year-round growth. You can imagine um, because these farms are inside, they're taking advantage of artificial light, uh, of LEDs to give the plants their light, which means that they are not susceptible to night and day. They're not susceptible to the seasons. They can keep growing the same plant year round. They also have the potential to reduce the amount of pesticides and fertilizer being used, sometimes eliminating them completely. Also consider when you think about how much farmland is out there and how rapidly farmland is expanding and growing. You know, we talk about deforestation, for example, in the Amazon, where they are destroying the rainforest in order to be able to grow palm oil or palm for palm oil. So if we're able to move that farming into an indoor space that's taking up less of a physical footprint, vertical farming is then less intrusive to existing plants and animals basically allowing an ecosystem to stay intact and reducing the amount of farmland sprawl that we're seeing. Of course, another big advantage to this is one that we've already sort of referenced, which is we can grow the food in the same urban environment that it's being consumed. So when we're talking about two thirds of the world living in urban areas by 2050, how great would it be if those people could walk to a grocery store and consume food that only had to be chipped in a mile away or two miles away or less, right? I, I think of a, obviously it's a, it's a sort of utopian view of this future where you walk into your local grocery store and maybe they grew the produce in the back of the store, right? And all they had to do was bring it to the front of the store to sell it. Instead of sitting on a plane or a train or in a truck for days or weeks at a time to make it from the other side of the world or the other side of the country, it's just much more fresh. Obviously, it's burning way less fossil fuels to get it to where it needs to be. And we're allowing areas to become more self-reliant instead of being reliant on supply chains and being reliant on geopolitical messes or other countries or nations or states or whatever it may be to provide their food for them. So because of the technologies that are being used, and these are some of the claims that are being made, and I will say that there was a wide variety of the claims being made 
on the efficiencies of vertical farming, but here's some of the numbers that I saw out there. So they say you can grow food up to three times faster in a controlled environment. It can use up to 95% less water, which is incredible. So that's one of the resources that we're saving a ton by doing vertical farming because the water is being more carefully applied directly to the plant instead of you can imagine, you know, you look out at a farm and whether it's flood irrigation or sprinklers, much of that water is being lost due to evaporation or runoff, which causes problems all on its own. So we're using way less water. And the, the big number here is that there's an increased yield for between five and 15 times the crop per square meter footprint used. Now, there are some claims out there that it's up to like 400 times the yield. And I, I didn't want to include those here because that to me seems outrageous. And I don't know that we're really seeing that consistently, but the average between all the articles I read and all the research I did seemed to be somewhere between five and 15 times as much food grown per square meter of land used. Well, if we were to stop the episode right here, I would walk away probably thinking, this is it. This is the solution. Because when you add up all of those benefits, all of the pros to vertical farming, it seems like it's a much more effective way to approach agriculture than the way that we've been doing it in the past. That said, I know at least enough about it and enough about the way these conversations go that that's not the end of the story. Yeah, I think it's time to bring you back down to earth. So I'll start with this number. And I will say that I tried to find more information about where this number was coming from in, in different sources. This was simply on the Wikipedia page, and we all know how Wikipedia is as a source. So take this with a grain of salt. But it said, as of 2020, there is the equivalent of about 74 acres of operational vertical farmland in the world. So when you compare 74 acres of vertical farmland as of 2020, but you compare that to over 4.5 billion acres of traditional farmland, uh, we've got a ways to go. And maybe there are some reasons why we haven't filled the world with vertical farmland yet. What that sounds like to me is they just calculated how many homes have a potted plant and they added <laughs> that all up because that, that, that doesn't seem like a, a significant number at all. Yeah, well, I'm guessing there's more than 74 acres worth of homes that have potted plants, right? This is like 74 acres compared to everything that's out there in traditional farming. It is hardly anything. Like I said, though, that number of 74 acres, I couldn't find any other sources that would show that. I will say that the single largest vertical farm is around 330,000 square feet, which is seven and a half acres on its own. And that was slated to open up this year. So that's about 10% of that overall number added on just this year. So it is a rapidly growing, a quickly changing and evolving technology. It's definitely one of those that is up and coming. It's not mature. And so, you know, it could be widely adopted going into the future. But that being said, let's talk about the challenges that it faces because it does face some very serious challenges. One of the main ones simply being cost. So currently, this, there was a study that was done that said that making bread from wheat grown in a vertical farm would cost $27 for a loaf, right? So we're at like, depending on where you're getting your bread, 10 times the amount for a loaf of bread made from wheat grown in a vertical farm. So for that reason, 
vertical farming is really currently best for high value crops, things like herbs, you know, that are smaller and they cost more per ounce or other greens. Currently, vertical farming is great for things like tomatoes or strawberries or peppers, kale, cabbage, lettuce. Those are all things that are grown very well in vertical farming, but there are things which are not good in vertical farming, like soybean and corn and wheat. And those are important things to note because 90% of farm acreage in the U.S. is from those three items, which cannot be grown in vertical farming efficiently or a profit. And to me, that makes a lot of sense. When you talk about all the efforts that are put into making sure food grown in vertical farming produces such a higher yield, you're talking about it being in an indoor space. But you think about how much square footage costs in, in any sort of a building. And I, I think about what you said, you don't have to rely on night and day and seasonality. Well, that means you've got to provide UV lights, right? And if you're going to have all the sensors and all of the other technologies that you've discussed, that can't be cheap. And so I don't know everything that goes into it, but it just seems intuitive that vertical farming would be extremely expensive for anything that you can't grow on a very small footprint. Yeah, you picture a massive combine harvesting wheat, right? And just acres and acres of a field of wheat and how quickly it can do that and how you don't really need to have an incredibly high yield to gather a bunch of wheat. Like you, the methodology in traditional farming works for that. If you try to picture wheat being grown on shelves inside a building and then you're what, like cutting it with scissors? Like it, it just doesn't, it doesn't compute. And so they have not found a way to make those things profitable. And to be frank, they may never find a way to make those things profitable in vertical farming. Another example here, there was a proposed vertical farm in Victoria, Australia, and it was estimated to cost 850 times more than the cost per meter for traditional farmland. So even though the yield might be much higher, the cost was 850 times higher. And it's because, you know, you mentioned a few of the reasons, Kellen, really well, just barely. One of them being, if we're trying to grow this in an urban environment, well, we know how much urban real estate costs. So even though it's a much smaller footprint, the cost for that land and then putting a building on that land is very high. Whereas you could go out to rural Victoria, Australia, buy some farmland for just an immense amount cheaper per acre. Okay, so the next piece of this is also something that you mentioned, which was those lights, right? We have got LEDs, we've got heating and cooling because we're trying to keep it all a steady temperature. We've got pumps running or elevators taking people and water and supplies up and down multiple stories. The amount of energy required for a vertical farm is much, much higher than that of a traditional farm. If non-renewable energy is what's being used to power a vertical farm, it would actually pollute more than most traditional farming methods would. So while vertical farming has its advantages to the environment, if we're not using renewable methods of energy to power them, it's actually a net loss. And you can picture the world quickly adapting and creating, developing these vertical farms. But if they're doing it with fossil fuels, 
Like we're just exacerbating climate change. We're just making it harder to grow food, the food that we have to grow outside. And it's just creating a more hostile environment. It's worse for the environment overall. So in that case, they need to use renewable energy. Well, looking at that, if you were to use solar panels, every acre of land used in vertical farming would require five and a half acres of solar panels. So suddenly that footprint that you created, that small footprint that we've been saying is so great, is no longer a small footprint. It actually results in vertical farming requiring more land than traditional farming, not less. Wow. I wasn't expecting that. That part kind of blows my mind. So you basically eliminate any of the advantages there, other than perhaps the fact that you're still protecting it from the weather. And that again goes back to the cost. Like non-renewable energy is expensive and yet renewable energy, although it's cleaner, is extremely expensive. Yeah, that's right. And you know, here we're talking about controlled environment vertical farming. There are other methods of vertical farming that may require less energy. They might require less cost, but that also means that their yield is not going to be as high either. So no matter how you look at it, there's this give and take but the overall idea of vertical farming does face this issue of energy consumption and cost. Now, we have talked about how this is a very immature technology, meaning there is a lot left to learn and to do, uh, you know, as far as learning about how to make it more efficient, less energy intensive, how to increase yields. More and more money is being poured into vertical farming. The USDA is really trying to push the growth of vertical farming. And so the hope is that over time, and, and hopefully over not much time, it will continue to make really rapid and intense gains in efficiencies. And that will hopefully bring those costs down. It will also hopefully bring the energy consumption down. When I think of like a future utopia, right? One that we on this podcast don't think will happen, won't exist. But if I could imagine one, if I was going to write a fiction novel about a future utopia, it would involve the mixture of vertical farming and nuclear fusion, right? The ability to have unlimited energy mixed with this technology. And yeah, I mean, you combine those two together and perhaps they're this unstoppable force to allow everyone to be fed and to allow them to be fed and, and grow their food where they live. But that's not the world we live in. It is fiction for the time being. And until we're able to solve those serious issues, vertical farming is still an experiment. And I will say that there are some really awesome applications here. I, I, I love the idea of the technology. And I think that when used on an individual scale, like for myself, if I want to be able to provide food for myself, learning vertical farming that I could do in a spare room in my basement or something like that is a great opportunity for me to be able to produce better yields for myself in a controlled environment. And as we head more and more into collapse, I think that that is a valuable skill set to learn. And I hope to be able to spend more time personally in doing that in the future. And I'm glad you bring that up because I think on an individual scale, it can definitely have a lot of benefits. Like you said before, if you're growing microgreens in your basement, chances are you're probably able to find a corner of space that you really don't need for anything else. You don't need to like build a bunch of infrastructure. You can just water it yourself and have a light shining on it. When you talked before about this potential utopia of combining vertical farming with like nuclear fusion, even if you did have the energy part of it figured out, you had unlimited energy, 
just the amount of space is something I don't think we could ever overcome. To have not only the energy, but also just the resources to create enough acres of like vertical farmland, it seems like that alone would be insurmountable. Yeah, my hope is that this is a a technology that we develop not only using higher technologies like AI and the internet of things, but also that, like you said, we can learn to do manually, right? I think of a, a future in climate change where in a collapse scenario, you know, as things are falling apart, what are we going to do with all the urban buildings that we have that are no longer being used, right? There, there's going to be all sorts of opportunities. We're already seeing shopping malls all over the world going unoccupied. And I've seen this question come up in economics, uh, actually in an economics class that I took when I was in college, he posed the question, what is America going to do with all their shopping malls? Because they're dying. And I think that same thing will be happening at some point with all the Walmarts of the world and, and all of these different businesses and buildings. Think of all the skyscrapers or all the office buildings out there. There's obviously going to be opportunities to take buildings that once existed for a current purpose and transition those into being used for better purposes. So that's that's one reason I really like this idea. Can we learn to do this in a low maintenance, low tech way that in a world where the climate has changed to a degree that we can't reliably grow things outside, can we still find a way to grow food for people inside? At our current population levels, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think we can feed 8 billion people possibly soon to be 9 billion people using vertical farming. But in a world with much less people in it, perhaps there's still an opportunity for something there. So what you're telling me is collapse has to happen in order for vertical farming to be viable. And even then, who knows if, if it could possibly be, right? But it, anyway, to me, it's, it's an interesting technology. It can't be used to feed as many people as we have right now. But if individually we can use it to feed ourselves, if I can use it to, in some part, supplement my family's nutrition, then, hey, I, I think it's, it's a great thing. As I was learning just with the microgreens, I was trying to keep track of, okay, well, what are the things that I do still need to have access to, right? I still needed the planting medium that I used. I didn't use soil. I used a cocoa core. Well, I had to be able to find that somewhere. Same thing with the nutrients. I could buy those in bulk, but eventually I would run out and I would need to be able to find natural ways of acquiring them. The water, the seeds, you know, there there are still things that you have to have access to to make this work. But I was still pleasantly surprised at, you know, the yields I was able to come up with after having done really pretty minimal research into the topic and learning. And I realized, hey, if I spent some time with this, if I dedicated some space and maybe a little money to a better setup, I could have I could have a little garden in my utility room, you know? But I can't say I'm excited to see where this technology goes over the next few years, over the next decade. I really do genuinely hope to see new ideas, new technologies coming out that, that make it a much more efficient and potentially viable option in the future for more food.
When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.